Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, all you hot dogs and bitches. Welcome to another episode of Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am your Carol Baskin knockoff co-host, Margot Poupard. And I, a leopard print enthusiast, am Emily Beijing. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I... You know, I lack the flower crown and the commitment of Carol Baskin, but um, I forced a bunch of friends in a Zoom happy hour to help me workshop this fucking joke because I was really high and thought to myself, what if Carol was a dog person? What would her sign on be? Because then maybe I could use it because I've been searching for like a standardized sign on for this podcast. You know, everybody has one except for us. (laughs) I feel like it would be if, – if Kara Baskin were a dog person, it would look a lot like that one contestant in Drop Dead Gorgeous who's obsessed with dogs <laughs> and who whose German shepherd like almost killed her. When she goes through the different barks of different yes. dogs. Yes. <laughs> well, it's funny that you should bring up that – that you should bring up um, Drop Dead Gorgeous from our cult classics episode because we're going to be tackling a different kind of cult classics this week. We're going to be talking about, well, as I had named this episode, uh, what, recording to Zencaster, um, we're going to be talking about Jawbreaker, Election, and Dick, which, you know, you could make that into a complete sentence if you really wanted to try. But yes. really, it's the political struggles and power struggles that happen within a high school or when you are high school aged. And even though Dick and election are more overtly and obviously tied to politics, I think that Jawbreaker handles the polit- the social politics of high school quite well, even though it's you know obviously a dark comedy and the probability that this would happen to you in high school is extremely low. (laughs) Yeah. But before we start talking about these three movies that have a lot more in common than political environments, because who wants to talk about that? Let's do a quick QC. What's what's your quarantine week? How's it been since I've talked to you last? What have you been up to? Have you made anything? Have you kept to a schedule? You know, how you holding Um, up over there? Well, I put on a bra today. Oh, my God. 
Um, I, uh, what else hold did I do? Hold for applause, please. Hold for applause. I um, have not worn pants that have a, a button on them yet, but maybe later this week. I made ramen carbonara today, which was delicious. I, I will be sending you the recipe later. Very easy pantry staple recipe. How is your uh, QC going? Or I guess, how is your quarantine going? Uh, I made baguette. Mm. I had a five-hour happy hour Zoom call where Sean and I drank two bottles of wine. So I'd say that's great. It's tequila soda Tuesdays also over at our home. And, you know, I've been sticking to a much healthier workout routine because when life feels difficult to schedule and have a routine around, I always kind of ground it around working out for whatever reason. I think it's just because of dance. I really think that's where it kind of comes from. So kind of like getting into a better schedule, which feels good because, you know, waking up at noon and being like, what's the fucking point is not the most fun feeling. But you know, some things change, but some things always stay the same. I am still late to shit constantly. So it feel good. I'm feeling better, but who knows? Because, you know, call me when this tequila soda is done and I might be in tears. We don't know where it will take me. We, we don't know. And as I told you earlier today, uh, or even earlier this week, I <laughs> hosted a happy hour of my own Friday night. And many of you who have known me at various parts of my life know I do love to fall asleep at various things after a few drinks. And I'm never one to cause drama after a few drinks. I'm just going to become a furniture fixture. And that's exactly what happened on Friday. I, during the midst of my Zoom meeting, where it was a drunk history happy hour. After the stories were all told, I decided to mute myself, turn off my camera, and take a little power nap that lasted about two hours. I was like, it wasn't a power nap. You were passed out for several hours. (laughs) I got to say, when you told me this story, it really gave me a lift. I laughed really hard. And then I told Zoe and Eileen in that Zoom happy hour of the story, which it also made them laugh. So I'm so glad that you and I are sticking to the routines that we know and love. And I also wish, especially since I have not the best sort of insomnia, it was more under controlled under regular circumstances. But now it's sort of like what is 2 a.m.? Like, I have no idea. I'm yeah. just like, why don't I just start watching Tu Wong Fu? <laughs> Nothing matters right now. I could do that. I don't need to be – well, I'm late to my own exercise classes that happen 17 feet away from my bed. I still do it. So anyway, I'm glad that you can pass out. I can still be late. We can still be us. Although, you know, I've upgraded from, you know, having wine or sometimes tea while recording to tequila. So, you know, it's just been one of those days. I I did think about making myself a mixed drink. I think the next time we record, I will definitely be doing that. So if you're like Emily and I, which is if you are alive, you are probably doing this. You are spending quite a bit of time inside of your home. Luckily, we are in the age of way too much TV and way too many movies that you might have missed at some point in time in the theaters or even just growing up. So you're probably scrolling through your available apps and you're wondering, what movies should I prioritize to watch? Because although it feels endless, I assure you there will be an end and you'll be like, fuck, I never started The Wire or whatever it was. So if you're looking for some suggestions about what movies to watch or even rewatch, we are going to do what we do best, which is revisit some cult classics from 20 years ago. Yes, because that's one thing that these three movies that we're going to talk about today have in common. They all turned 20 last year, and they also all came out kind of with 
that like within some relatively close succession. This is also, I talk about it a little bit later on, but the year of 1999 is sort of a pinnacle for teen movies. It's where you, a, a lot of teen classics kind of come from that people our age love to look yeah. back on fondly that have had a lot of think pieces and have gathered up the casts and done some entertainment weekly spreads or have held some panels at a con about. So I think what I want to ask you first before we get into all of them, which ones did you see in theaters? Did you see any of them in theaters? How did you come to have a love for all three of these? Because we've seen we've seen all three of these, correct? Of I'm course. not alone. Yeah, in that. yeah, yeah. No, okay. absolutely. And I was I was Just gonna confirming. say one earlier was going to say that yes, agreed. What's funny, I was thinking as we were doing all the research for this episode. Wow, we've already covered quite a few teen movies that were released in 1999 over the course of this podcast. Like, we've covered at least I half know. a dozen at this point. And what's interesting to me is we found three others that we had never covered. And I know that there are plenty of other, like, B grade, C grade teen movies from 1999 that we still haven't covered. But in terms of these, I have not, I never actually saw any of these in theaters. They were all sleepover um, movies for me. Like I saw them all three at various sleepovers in uh, early middle school. How about you? I saw all three of them. I saw all three in theaters, all three of them. Really? I saw Election and... I saw Election and Dick with my dad in theaters. So, I i mean, i it, this is not a secret on this podcast. I had divorced parents, and especially with a dad, they don't know what to do with you. So the solution oftentimes was to go to the movies, which is how I ended up seeing The Wedding Singer three times in theaters. Wow. In theaters. <laughs> That's a lot. superstar twice. Yeah, I've, I've oh seen a lot God. of movies in theaters multiple times. I, I've said this before to friends, so I will say it again. Paul Shear has a lot of really funny childhood stories that he likes to tell on how this get made. And he and I have a lot of similarities growing up, mainly in the like divorced parents weekend where you would just lie to make the other person feel better about what you did so that if that meant that you had to go see election one more time in theaters with a different parent, so be it. But both of my parents are, I, I like to call them Clinton Democrats because that's truly where their values align the most. And my family's a pretty politically involved one. They've always have been. And so it's not really like a surprise to me in retrospect, looking back that my dad took me to see election and Dick, but I saw Jawbreaker with my mom and my best friend, Marianne. And that's not the first time that me and Marianne will be very uncomfortable in a movie theater while sitting next to my mom during a sex scene. The other time oh, was yeah. I went to see eight mile. But that's oh my god, that's I, exactly what I was going to say. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. I, I ac- no, 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 no. I accidentally fucked over Marianne. So obviously we went to go see like opening weekend. I didn't know there was a sex scene that I needed to be scared yes. of. I mean, there wasn't like Twitter to tell me that. So we go, we're in the theater or whatever. We're looking for seats and I spot three seats and it was sold out or very packed. So I like ran to go get the seat. So I walked in first. So it was like me, then Marianne and my mom sat on the end. And then when the sex scene started to happen, I could feel Marianne turn towards me and look at me because I knew I betrayed her. I like, I didn't, but what else did you change seats mid? Like then she would know that we're uncomfortable. And then, you know, election and election definitely has like some sex scenes that were very uncomfortable to watch with my dad. But the one that is the most uncomfortable for me was we went to go see Wedding Crashers, but we saw it in French. And so the joke is a little bit different, but essentially the, the hand job under the table part, he laughed really hard at it in the movie theater. And I'll never forget like looking over at him like, Ew, I don't want to know why you think that's funny. I feel very oh, uncomfortable. And I might just go to the concession stand and scream for a couple of minutes and then come back. I... But election, 
Yes. That was I, also very odd because there are multiple sex scenes where you're just like, oh God, I just wish so that I was sitting here by myself. <laughs> I have a I also have an eight mile story. I went and saw Eight Mile with a girl I was friends with at the time in my freshman year of high school. And her dad and her family was quite religious, as you guys know. Um, I talk about going to Catholic school for 10 years, and uh, her parents were very conservative Catholic. And so we went and then there's that sex scene. And it's not just like any sex scene. It's like uh, they're in a factory and like clearly like banging it out sex scene. And it was just the most. He bangs her like on a. Yeah, it's like like on a pipe or whatever. Yeah, like they (laughs) go off a dock, like behind a a loading dock or something or somewhere in the factory. In my mind, I was going to say, I'm like, it's a factory that like makes cars or am I putting the cars in there? Yeah, oh no, no, it's a, I think it's, I think you're right. It is a car, it has to be an auto factory because, you know, Detroit. Thank you, But yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, That was just very, very uncomfortable, I remember. And uh, yeah, uh, in hindsight- (laughs) wild that, that I was seeing that with uh with my friend and her very conservative dad I uh. also have a, a quick tidbit about the movie dick when I <laughs> when I saw all the president's men years later I was like oh I know a lot about this because yes. I saw dick no I felt the same <laughs> way so I they did I mean, they did Watergate for teens, which I thought was amazing because then exactly. when it rolled around in history class or even just in watching it in more historically prominent movies, I was like, mm, yes, from the movie Dick. <laughs> yeah. So that's I think that was the funniest thing for me was like I hadn't seen Dick in its entirety in maybe 10 years. And of course, one, All the President's Men is one of my op- all time favorite movies. And it's so funny, just like the parallels of everything they cover in that movie that I already knew because of the movie Dick. And realizing how well they parody the whole Watergate incident and all the president's men in that movie, um, very accurately. So, like, I, I, it's, it's kind of great going back to see Dick or watch Dick. Oh my god! So, by the way, guys, whenever we talk about this movie throughout this entire podcast episode, it's going to be really awkward because every time I say it, it just like comes out sounding weird. But um, it's just amazing to me yes, how. No, please. Ac- Please read the uh, the text message that you sent me oh, last yeah. night. Let me really let me pull up the text me for a whole. Well, so uh, like, I also as you all know, I, go, I love a good free free st- streaming service. So, we found another. So I signed up. I signed up for this free streaming service too, Emily, because it has Jawbreaker on it, and I watched that last night because I didn't want to pay to rent election because I have already bought cats on <laughs> streaming, and I just yep. you know it's going to be a minute before I spend money. I've got a streaming so I think budget go back now. And, yeah. I know. I think I might go back and watch Dick, though, because I also haven't seen it since, I don't know, a middle school slumber party. So here is what I texted Margot yesterday at 8.25 p.m. After telling her I was joining my first ever campaign for Dungeons and Dragons. This is where we all are in quarantine. Um, Okay, so I texted her about roller coaster. (laughs) About to download another weird streaming app to watch Dick. (laughs) So for a second, I was like, Oh, why wouldn't she just say Pornhub or whatever? But then I realized she meant research for the podcast. Deep research. It was a very uncomfortable few few minutes when I let that sink in. (sighs) Well, I did some extensive research of my own. And to tie it back to presidents, I suppose... I'm going to talk about Barack Obama's favorite political film. That's right, election. Obama's taste, Obama's taste level remains undefeated, though. I, election is an, an excellent movie, and 
the research that I have, there are some interesting little bits, but mostly because it's such a great, um, critically acclaimed film. It's not like there was some goss and it's not like Alexander Payne revealed himself to be, I don't know, a creep or whatever in the years past. So there's nothing to really analyze other than to give you straight, straight facts that are a little fluffed up. So Election was released in May of 1999, and the plot centers on a student council race at a high school in Omaha, which is where the director, Alexander Payne, is from. Junior overachiever Tracy Flick is a shoe in to be the president until she's challenged by a dumb rich kid jock, Paul Metzler, who is talked into running despite having zero experience or interest by their teacher, Jim McAllister, who really can't stand Tracy. It's actually, I haven't rewatched it in probably a couple of years, but I, I think as you're as you get older and you see men in your real life treat you the way that Jim treats Tracy, it does make you a little bit more mad and it feels a little less funny at times. Or at least that's how oh, I thought the last sure. time I watched it. I was like, no, this fucking sure. grown ass man is taking out his rage on like a 16 year old. And that's why when her little speech, when she's like, and he just wants to live a sad little life doing his sad little things for, for the rest of his sad little days. I'm like, yeah, you fucking stick it to him, Tracy. No, totally. And I think that there's, especially with the way things have gone in our political world uh, in the last couple of years, where we've just proven time and time again that America will not elect a woman for president. I feel like, um, you know, I sympathize so much with Tracy Flick's character because she deals with so much shit and so much of what Matthew Broderick's character does in that movie is so, you know, echoes so much of what happens now. Anyway, I I digress. I'm sure you're going to go into that later. Oh, yeah. And I would say I would reserve your sympathies because I think ultimately you'll realize she's a little bit more of like a Megyn Kelly and less of like a a Hillary Clinton type. You can feel bad because she doesn't deserve to be treated like this, period. But you can also realize that, I mean, all shall be revealed, but she's not... She is a success at all costs kind of person. Right. No, for sure. Jim let that cloud his judgment and essentially look like he's bullying a 17-year-old instead of just like letting the world deal with her. But anyway, the race gets even more complicated when Paul's little sister, Tammy, who really steals this entire movie, who only also wants to become elected so she can dismantle the student government, decides to run as well. Directed by Alexander Payne, as I had said before, this is adapted from the Tom Peretta novel of the same name. It stars Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick as Tracy and Mr. McAllister. Matthew Broderick, who has killed a person with his car, was at an odd, and let's be real, he still is part of his filmography, election is sandwiched between Godzilla and Inspector Gadget. I mean, ultimately, and Reese Witherspoon had... After the early 90s, I feel like his focus, you know, apart from a movie here and there and Inspector Gadget and then Godzilla was strictly theater. Like that's been his his thing for the last 20 plus years. I think it's I think it's more I understand that because he is, you know, a New Yorker. So they care about Broadway more. But it's when he decides to pop into movies where you're like, what? Why this? I mean, with the exception of election and a few other things, you know, Inspector Gadget, obviously, that's like a payday or you know, a remod of your kitchen or whatever the goal was there. But his choices are odd. Sometimes they don't play to like the strengths or maybe it's the director or the script or something that fell short. But you scroll through that bad boy of an IMDb profile and you're like, what? <laughs> Did Matthew Broderick just like not? I mean, maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe that's it. Um, in contrast, though, Reese Witherspoon had gone from filming Cruel Intentions to this. And even though both are considered, quote unquote, high school movie- movies, they're both very different. Peretta has said that his novel was inspired by the dynamics of the 1992 election, which should explain in some part why this movie and book are as relevant as ever. 
1992 election that was between George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton and Ross Perot, who is the stand-in as the billionaire third-party candidate like Tammy. Though Tracy has drawn the comparison to Hillary Clinton and more recently Kristen Gillibrand and Elizabeth Warren, but I hate to break it to y'all, but Tracy has always been a Republican. She writes letters to Connie Chung and Elizabeth Dole. In the final scene, we learn that she works for a Republican congressman. So I don't, I, I wasn't surprised by this, but whoever had written this Vanity Fair article that I read was clearly surprised by the fact that she was actually a Republican. So I think that she was being painted more as like a libertarian, which, you know, what a fucking... I'm, I will not get into that. Never mind. I'm going to avoid, I'm going to swerve on politics and save bye my bye, opinions Rand. for bye bye. my brain. Yeah. <laughs> save it for keeping it in my brain and yelling at myself. But before it was a movie, Parada had a really hard time selling his book. Publishers couldn't figure out whether to market it as a YA novel or an adult novel. The movie's eventual producers, Albert Berger and Ron Yerksa, it's why. E-R-X-A, so I apologize if I mispronounced that. Any hoodle, they got their hands on a galley copy, and this resulted in the book getting optioned by MTV Films and published by Putnam, which we need to do an episode about MTV Films because they oh, produced- Oh, for sure. Dead Man on Campus. That actually, Save I was about to say, man. so that came up. That came up in the Zoom chat. Eileen was talking about how she had made like a top five of some movies that she really loved, and she looked back and she was like, Four out of five of them were all MTV films. So it was like Dead Man on Campus, Joe's Apartment, which I had to look up because I couldn't remember that one. Mm. Anyway, I think that it's worth a look-see. Yeah. No, it's interesting. MTV movies and Nickelodeon movies at the time, which was like obviously for younger audience, but both of them were like pumping out some really interesting movies, just like a wide array. Well, it's, you know, just because they were skewed towards a more young audience doesn't mean that like Rugrats the movie was like a big deal too. Right. No, for sure. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's all under the Viacom umbrella, but I was just saying like it was interesting that I feel like MTV oh, sure. films and um, Nickelodeon movies had very similar trajectories, just how and they became big powerhouses in the late 90s at the same time. Well, leave this little audio footnote so that we can add it to our spreadsheet. Okay. The second real-life event that election was inspired by was a 1992 incident that happened at Memorial High in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. A pregnant student was elected homecoming queen, but staff announced a different winner and then burned the ballots to cover it up, which sounds fucking insane. Uh, Payne uses a lot of... Right? Isn't that weird? I I didn't know that it was... I had an inkling that it was inspired by the 1992 elections, just based on the sort of structure and skeleton of how the movie kind of plays out. I haven't read the book before. I actually was not aware. If you didn't know, um, Tom Peretta also has written The Leftovers and Mrs. Fletcher and a couple of other novels. So yeah, I also believe, oh God, what's that other Alexander Payne movie with um, George Clooney? Not not The Outsiders. No, Um, I know. The Descendants. The yeah, Descendants, the Descendants. Thank you. I think he's also written that. Yeah. So he he's written a lot of novels. He also is a screenwriter. He didn't write this in particular, but he he does both. Payne, Alexander Payne, the director, has used a lot of stylized techniques to tell the story from four main point of views throughout the movie. Um, they would be Mr. McAllister, Tracy Flick, Paul, and Tammy Metzler. He uses freeze frames, flashbacks, and voiceovers. I think it's 2017. I, I forgot to write it down, but it's 2017 or 2016, somewhere around there. They released a um, election to a Criterion Collection Blu-ray. And so Alexander mm. Payne did a lot of the DVD commentary, obviously, for that. And so he um, he was talking about 
well, he was giving like sound bites throughout the DVD commentary about how he was greatly influenced at the time by Goodfellows and Casino, which is why he decided to have this sort of like different stylized narration over certain parts and then utilize the free oh, yeah. the freeze frames to sort of like set the time in place. And that so makes now, sense. now that he that checks it out, out exactly. Then it Ooh. exactly. And then in turn, those were all in, those all inspired Itania, which feels very much like a like Goodfellas, and that you get the setting, you get the freeze frames, you get the different points of view. Like, um, I totally it totally checks out with Election for sure. I would also say Itania is probably a little bit influenced by Election by in the sense that also the way that the, the costume styling is, yep. and I think that they also shot on a lot of. They shot on location in a lot of the places where it was nearby. So it really kind of got the feel, which is how Election kind of came to be as well. For sure. Although it was a box office bomb grossing only $17 million against a, at most, a $25 million budget, Election did receive a lot of critical acclaim. It's certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes at 92%, and it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, a Golden Globe nom for Reese Witherspoon as Best Actress, and an Independent Spirit Award for Best Film in 1999. Is that her first Golden Another Globe aspect of- nod? She didn't win. She was just nominated. And probably- right, right, right. Probably if I ha- I didn't double check, but if I had to guess, it's not like Fear was nominated or anything like that. So I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I would hope not. <laughs> I, I'll have to double check and maybe that can be included in my Medium post about it. But um, I think that must be like her first Golden Globe nom for anything. Because this is like the first movie where people are like, oh, she's not just a teen actress. She can be taken seriously. She can stretch herself and... There's there are a couple of articles where Alexander Payne talks about how Reese Witherspoon took a lot of like dialect classes to kind of really like nail this Midwestern accent, but not go too into the Fargo range because this is also peak Fargo popularity, Coen Brothers time. For and he sure. said that every time that she would, they would get ready to shoot a scene, she would do this little like bewitched nose mouth twitch thing that would ground her in her character, and it would suddenly she'd become Tracy Flick in that instant, like as soon as she did that little. Just that little thing. And I love these like weird little actor tics. I wouldn't ever want to be around it in my day-to-day life. But I think it's super fascinating to see like the little tricks that actors use to kind of like get them into the same headspace all of the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another aspect of Election that set it apart from other high school movies, besides the critical acclaim part, is that a lot of the actors actually look like they were high schoolers. And that's because Alexander Payne cast a mix of real actors and non-actors. As a matter of fact, A lot of the non-actors were students at the high school in Nebraska where the movie was filmed. Chris Klein, who was a student at the time at Millard West High School, was quote-unquote discovered by Payne when they were location scouting. They didn't end up using Klein's high school, but they called him into audition for Paul. And although they auditioned a, a couple of other actors, obviously against him, they ultimately gave Chris Klein his film debut. The original ending to Election, I know, right? I had no idea that he had not been an actor. I thought that he had at least started as like an Abercrombie model or something. Maybe that's just no, like that's my own Hartnett. You know what? That makes sense, though, because I feel like he and Hartnett were in a couple of movies. Josh Hartnett were a couple of movies together at the, around that time. I think Hartnett got his start in Emily, Abercrombie. Emily, you don't need to clarify Hartnett with, you know, Josh Hartnett. We all we all know here. We're all friends. We all, we Josh, know you Josh, mean Josh Hartnett. Ha. Hotnet, as some of the magazines would say. No, and he's he's from the Midwest as well, too. I think he's from like the greater Minneapolis, mm-hmm. Twin Cities area. So um, it, it's I, it's interesting. Their careers are probably getting a head start around that same time. And they were probably discovered in similar ways. But I think Hartnett is the one who did Abercrombie. 
Josh the Hartnett doing Abercrombie. Well, <laughs> I I can see how I conflated the two, but I think they also both kind of have this. There's something about Chris Klein too. He's got kind of like a boyish charm that lends itself to pretending or misremembering that he might have been in Eric Crombie's well, shoot. He's also this like lovable oath character in this movie that I feel like his character is like a prototype for what you end up seeing in Glee as like Finn's character, the late Corey Monteith's character, I find is very similar to um to the Chris Klein character in Election. They're kind of dumb jocks, but like in the lovable sense, like they're not mean-spirited people. They are not, you know, the ones out there torturing people and stuff. They're they're just not the brightest crayons in the box. I would also say that there are parts of like Paul Metzler's personality that definitely remind me of just George Bush, George W. Bush, just straight oh, up sure. like affable, kind of like likable, want to get a beer with him kind of guy. He's for good sure. at sports, but like only in kind of like a white guy way. It's like he's good at sports because, wow, he's white and he's good at sports and he's a guy. Can't believe it. Um, right. He just has always kind of skated by on like his charm and likability. I mean, I think that the greatest and most brilliant thing about election is that it's cast so well, but the characters are so – I don't want to say broadly drawn because I feel like that gives it a disservice to the work that goes into the characterization that is in this script. But there's something universal. There's a universal trait or trope about each character without playing up the actual trope aspects that – it's easy for you to graft these personalities onto real-life political figures because they are so deeply rooted in them and – Regardless of who you are, I I really like there's I think it was in the Vanity Fair article where and they talked about how Tracy Flick, even though whatever, she's a Republican, there's like some aspect of like Elizabeth Warren in there where like you can be too prepared, you can be too eager because it turns people off. And so I just thought that that was really interesting to note that there will always be overly ambitious and eager women because in order to get anywhere, you have to be overly eager and overly prepared. So I just think that it just struck a nerve and that's why it kind of holds up. And also I, I, Alexander Payne says it in a couple of his interviews that I read. Election is the movie that he gets stopped the most about and gets told that that's this person's favorite movie. I mean, aside from Obama, who apparently told him twice that election <laughs> is like his favorite political film. Oh, so um, that is that's interesting to note to me because I think it is also it's more than sideways. hundred percent. I really love For- election. <laughs> I had a funny conversation about sideways, quick sidetrack, this uh, past weekend. My sister is taking a wine class right now to learn more about wine pairings and just general wine stuff so that she can eventually take like her W set, I think is called this WSET or whatever. But one of the things I asked her was like, did your instructor go on a rant already about how Paul Giamatti ruined the Merlot market for many years because of Sideways. And and she said, yes, that like Paul Giamatti's rant in Sideways actually had an impact on the Merlot market for about a solid decade, which is fascinating. Like, I cannot believe that the effect of the Alexander Payne movie Sideways on a wine market. Anyway, I digress. Continue. Oh, that's fine. The original ending to Election hewed more closely to the book, but the alternate version wasn't more broadly known about until 2011 when someone bought an old VHS tape at a yard sale. Apparently, the original ending goes something like this. Jim stays in Omaha and is hired as a used car salesman by one of his former students instead of moving to New York. Tracy comes to the car dealership where he works and asks him to sign her yearbook. She confesses to him her fear about going off to college, and he consoles her. Then he apologizes for sabotaging her election. A huge departure 
from McAllister throwing a big gulp at a town car and then running away. But according to the internet, you can see this alternate ending on YouTube. Symbols and other fun shit. (laughs) Oh, I love these notes I leave myself that I, like, forgot about even though I finished writing this, like, maybe 30 minutes before we started recording. (laughs) Apples are prominently featured in the movie, usually before trouble arrives for a character. This analogy is used to entice Paul Metzler to enter into the election. An apple tree is shown before Jim gets stung by a bee and has a terrible reaction. Apples hang above the doorway in Jim's living room right before he discovers his wife knows that he's cheating on her. And then he also wins the Apple Teacher of the Year Award at the beginning of the movie. In the gym scenes, the extras that were featured were actual high school students, and Alexander Payne faced the problem of not having enough of them because it was SAT season, which... I didn't really realize that was a thing. And many of them, <laughs> many of them had already found the process of being an extra to be tedious at best. So he had to shoot around the fact that they would like cycle in and out, which I found to be hysterical. Being an extra <laughs> is tedious bullshit work. Since the movie was shot at a real high school, Papillon La Vista Senior High School in Omaha, Nebraska, some background noises from real teachers and students are used throughout the film, which I think is brilliant, to kind of just record some white noise and then use that underneath everything. Thor Birch was originally cast as Tammy Metzler, but left filming in on the third day because of creative differences with Alexander Payne, which also I thought was Trey interesting. While shooting the basement scene in Jim McAllister's house, the crew left everything as it was from the original tenants that they were renting the house from, and so they didn't have to do any sort of set deck. They just used what was there. Melissa Joan Hart auditioned for the role of Tracy Flick, which, that would have not been good. Uh, Tim Robbins was an early contender for the role of Jim, and the film began shooting in the fall, but a freak snowstorm stopped shooting for, it didn't tell me how much time, but for long enough that it affected their budget. And originally, Reese Witherspoon wanted to play Tammy Metzler. And that is Election from 1999. Well, Election, I um, I still remember seeing it for the first time. I think it was either at a sleepover or maybe it was in my parents' house. I don't know. But um, I just... I think I remember that and Dick always being on great like political film lists in terms of like the best kind of political films out there, just because people usually think of all the president's men, which makes sense. And like, um, you know, several other films that directly deal with uh, with politics. But I love election because it, you know, it does so much capture the essence of how many real life political campaigns end up happening And I also love Dick because of how the reimagining of one of the most important political scandals of all time is so well done and so well thought out, even as it's disguised as a teen movie. So Dick was released in 1999 and was directed by Andrew Fleming, who you may remember because we've talked about him before. He directed The Craft, which we talked about during our Witches Halloween episode, as well as Threesome, aka that movie that uh, the conservative Baldwin brother pretends he didn't film because there's a threesome in it, Nancy Drew, and Hamlet 2, which I love. Um, And he also wrote the screenplays for those movies. The screenplay was also co-written by Cheryl Longan, who doesn't have much on her IMDb, But she is very interesting because it's actually the story is based on uh, an interaction that she had with Nixon as a kid growing up, which I'll get into later. 
So the plot, pretty briefly, I'm going to try not to go into it too much. I wrote a lot, but I'll try to summarize it at best. Uh, Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams play two 15-year-old best friends, Betsy Jobes and Arlene Lorenzo, and they're living in D.C. in 1972. Betsy lives in Georgetown, which is this really wealthy neighborhood, and Arlene lives in the Watergate apartments with her mom. And that is where they, one night, when trying to mail a fan letter to Bobby Sherman, run into what they believe to be a jewel thief who tries to scare them away. Um, And they later watch from Arlene's balcony, uh, an arrest happen with a group of men outside the building. Later during a DC school trip, they see this man again and see him with a piece of paper on stuck to his shoe that they end up collecting as a quote unquote souvenir, um, where this guy recognizes them. And it turns out it's G Gordon Liddy. He, um, then takes them in for questioning with H.R. Halderman, who was another one of Nixon's uh, associates in the administration. But it's all shown to be a misunderstanding. They quickly realize these are dumb teenage girls. And that's when they stumble upon Richard Nixon, who also realizes this. Um, and to keep them at close, just in case uh, they might know a thing or two, he decides to give them the title of official White House dog walkers because they love Checkers the dog so much. So while walking the dog and um, making many visits to the White House, we are led to believe that they are responsible for some of the biggest accomplishments during the Nixon administration, such as ending the Vietnam War, because Betsy talks about how her stoner brother Larry played by Devin Gummersall, a.k.a. Brian Krakow from My So-Called Life, um, we're led to believe that they are the reasons for uh, ending the Vietnam War because his draft card has been drawn up. And these two girls unintentionally feed the Nixon administration and Soviet Union leader Brezhnev marijuana-laced cookies called Hello Dollies, which results in a shared (laughs) sing-along of the musical song and later the Nixon-Brezhnev Accord. (laughs) So... I love, I was rewatching this. I think I loved it as a 12 year old or 13 year old, but as a 32 year old, really enjoyed it now that I know all the history around this. During this time, I when also they're go- think that this was the first, this is the first time I ever had heard about like weed stuff before, too. Yeah. And so when they, me too, like edibles, like well, the concept of edibles. For sure. The concept of edibles and also just about like being high, it can have like dramatic. Uh, consequences, I suppose. But now that they have Girl Scout cookies and stuff like that, every time I see it pop up on a menu, it just makes me think about this movie. Even though it's oh, not same. quite the same name, like it, the cookies aspect of it just makes me think about that movie. Oh, for sure. And then what I love is um, <laughs> later um, they uh, are joking, or at the end, uh, they tell the brother that like they've fed Nixon those cookies, and he's like, Man, that must be why he's so paranoid. Like, it's so perfect. During this time, Arlene abandons her Bobby Sherman crush and starts crushing on Richard Nixon, who they call Dick. This leads to a 70s romantic beach dream sequence and many I love Dick related jokes. Hence why my text conversations with Margot have been in like very, very awkward the last couple of days. When Arlene finds a tape recorder in just, the Oval Office. Just that one exchange when you say that you're signing up for a weird service so that you can watch Dick. Watch Dick. That's it. I think when you put all of those words together and you see it out of context while you're cooking, then you're like, what? That's all. You know, I think then once we get past that initial awkward hump, then it was all cleared up. It was fine. But yes, you're correct. That was very awkward. When Arlene finds a tape recorder in the Oval Office, she records 18 and a half minutes of her declaration of love featuring the rendition of Olivia Newton-John's I Honestly Love You, 
We are led to believe, by the way, that these 18 and a half minutes uh, are why there were blank 18 and a half minutes in the Watergate tapes later on down the line when all of this is said and done. When trying to rewind the tape, the girls discover that Nixon records all of his conversations um, and figure out that he is, in fact, responsible for the White House uh, Watergate cover-up. He um, makes all these anti-Semitic remarks, and he is mean to Checkers the dog, which is the most important point, of course. When the girls confront Nixon about all these things, he yells at them and they run off. And now, knowing everything... They- Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. They decide to reach out to Woodward and Bernstein over at the Washington Post, played by Will Ferrell and Bruce McCulloch, who they keep calling the radical muckraking bastards because that's what Nixon calls them. Um, They meet up with the girls. They agree to meet up with the girls in an underground garage, which is where the two reporters are shocked to find out they're talking to a bunch of dumb teenage girls um, and that these will be their sources. And on top of it all, the piece of paper that Betsy had on her that was actually, turns out, a uh, list of the names of those involved from the committee to reelect the president, along with the sums of money that they got for being a part of the burglary. They find out that that evidence has been destroyed because the dog actually ate it. Nixon's men realize that these girls are an actual threat. And so much like in All the President's Men, they start getting followed. They start getting bugged. Uh, There are plumber trucks all around their apartment, near their apartment complex. Uh, Arlene's mom, played by Terry Garr, at one point has a cute new boyfriend who's clearly a undercover agent for the White House. Um, They continue to, they decide that in order to have physical evidence to give to Woodward and Bernstein to prove what they're saying is true, they go to Halderman's house um, and get to sneak in there by way of Betsy making out with his son's friend, played by baby Ryan Reynolds. Uh, And during that time, Arlene is able to steal the crucial tape recording to prove that Nixon knew of the burglary and they covered it up. They give it to Woodward and Bernstein, who then in turn tell them that they will never reveal who they are um, and will keep the name Deep Throat, which is, by the way, because uh, Betsy's brother got in trouble for going to see the porn movie Deep Throat. Um, they are too embarrassed by the fact that the source for this ar- these articles are, in fact, a bunch of teenage girls. So one night before the resignation, Nixon finds Arlene's message on his tape and erases it, reasoning that he could be crucified if it was ever found out that message or this declaration of love was on here. And it sounds like he's having an affair with a 15-year-old. He resigns. And when he flies over D.C. 
After his resignation in his helicopter, he sees Betsy and Arlene from Betsy's rooftop wearing iconic groovy American flag outfits and waving a giant banner that says, you suck dick. We are left with an epilogue at the end of this movie where Betsy's brother, Larry, helps invent quaaludes, which I'm pretty sure ludes had been around for much longer than the mid-70s, LOL, um, which makes him millions of dollars. And through an investment that he gives the two girls, they open a roller skating rink. And so we're left at the end with them roller skating around disco dancing themed oval office and also sucking on lollipops that have the word dick on them, which is kind of awkward consider they're 15, but uh, that's that. You the say a man pick. directed this movie? Yeah, I know. Surprise, surprise. You said a man directed this? That's so weird. I, that I they, know. Why they on suck on lollipops with the word dick on them. And they're supposed to be so underage. Weird. Totally weird. So this movie is fascinating um, in terms of from a behind the scenes perspective. I'm going to try to breeze through this as much as I can because I got a lot of personal stuff to talk about as this is one of the few movies where I have personal connections um, because I did not grow up in Burbank. <laughs> uh, so Andrew Fleming and Stace Cheryl Longin attempted to write several dis- different scripts with teenage girls as protagonists. And the idea of Watergate using that as the backdrop actually came through an experience that Longin had with Nixon when her family stayed at the same hotel as him. She, as a kid, she and a friend pelted Nixon with ice cubes when they were staying in this hotel, which caused a minor disturbance. And it's also based on like Fleming's surprise at the attempts to rehabilitate Nixon's image, which we've seen in like Frost Nixon and and other things like that. And the because for both of them, the Watergate scandal was a real defining political moment for their generation. Their original script, which had just been supposed to be about a bunch of teenagers uh, growing up through like boring stuff like the oil shortage in the 70s, turned into this Watergate, here's who's really responsible for being deep throat story. They approached a couple of people to cameo in this, like Ben Bradley, who was the um, editor-in-chief of the Washington Post at the time, and I I think was still at that point in the 90s, I could be wrong, Um, and John Dean, who was Nixon's counsel, uh, to play themselves, but both declined. And what's funny about Dean is he declined, but he was really interested by this movie. He proceeds to take the script and do a full rewrite on his own, trying to convince Fleming to use this version of his script. Um, And Fleming felt so bad, like he didn't want to like insult Dean and wanted to thank him for any help he's provided and like giving him kind of accurate information, just kind of let him do that. And then like took the script and just like put it in a drawer and never wanted to touch it. So it didn't compromise his vision for the movie. I was surprised at just how much was filmed in Toronto because I, growing up, remembered so much of this movie being filmed in D.C. and recognizing a lot of the places, but there are only a couple of filming locations that are actually D.C., mainly kind of everything surrounding the White House, including like the White House lawn. Um, And there's also a scene where the girls are like clearly walking in Georgetown because I can see like my dad's old office building. But uh, most of it was actually filmed in the greater Toronto area. In terms of music, they were able to clear a lot of music for this movie like elton john's crocodile rock um they were able to clear a bunch of other like good hit songs but one of the ones that they weren't able to get included captain tenille's love will keep us together uh, because they were actually both republicans um and they didn't want to be a part of that which is uh kind of funny because love did not keep them together and they ended up getting a divorce like 10 years ago And then finally, they actually wanted to get originally Led Zeppelin. They wanted to use Over the Hills and Far Away for the final scene with the American flag outfits. 
but they weren't able to clear it because like Led Zeppelin's notoriously known for almost never giving the okay for their songs. I think the three movies I could think of were um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High for Kashmir, almost famous for That's the Way It Should Be in Tangerine, and then Immigrant Song in School of Rock. But pretty much like Zeppelin is usually not one that gives their music out, but it worked out really well because they ended up using Carly Simon's You're So Vain, which is so perfect for that final scene that like I could never imagine a Zeppelin song at that point anyway. In terms of the costumes, first off, iconic outfits that I just loved. I was watching this movie and seeing all the coats and everything. I was realizing I clearly bought a brown pea coat from Topshop last year because I was inspired by the 70s and the outfits in this movie. But the apparently the costumes were never before worn clothes that were actually from the 70s. And the costume designer, Deborah Everton, visited a warehouse in Denver where they had all these unused clothes from the 70s and then a lot of like dead stock clothing and fabric. And uh, and that's what was used in the movie. So it wasn't even just like a costume designer, you know, pieces here and there. These Everything was from the 70s and unused. Um, in terms of the release of this film, it didn't do very well, much like Election and I believe Jawbreaker as well. It was released in 1999. It grossed $2.2 million in its opening weekend and went on to gross $6.3 million, But it has a 71% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm going to go into my personal observations. Uh, I had a lot of great ones while watching this movie last night. At the end, the girls watch Nixon's resignation speech in a department store and they say, it's going to be different now. They'll never lie to us again. And this is funny because this is clearly a reference to Bill Clinton since this was filmed in 1998. And two, our current president has done nothing but lie to us these past four years. So it is just a perfect ending to the movie uh, in terms of the final quotes. This movie has a very important connection to my life because it was filmed near where I grew up. There's even a scene where you can see my dad's office building at one point. Um, There's even more of a personal connection because the real Deep Throat, a.k.a. W. Mark Felt, actually lived down the street from the house I grew up in in Fairfax, Virginia. I grew up on Winford Drive. My parents no longer live at that house, but down the street, like three or four houses down, is in fact the real Deep Throat's house where he lived in the 70s. The casting in this movie is fantastic. Obviously, Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams are great as teenage BFFs. But a lot of the other minor players in this movie are SNL and Kids in the Hall alums. So in terms of SNL, we get Will Ferrell, who plays Bob Woodward. Anna, Anna Gosteyer is Nixon's secretary. Jim Brewer is uh, John Dean, the, the White House counsel. Harry Shearer is J. Gordon Liddy. And then from Kids in the Hall, we have Dave Foley as Halderman and Bruce McCullough as, Bern, as Carl Bernstein. Um, in terms of other things... Okay, so inaccuracies. <laughs> My they talk a lot about a department store in this movie called Garfinkel's, which was an actual regional department store that closed when I was a little kid. Um, my mom shopped there a lot because it was right near her office building in DC in the 80s. And uh, they talk about meeting at a parking garage near Garfinkel's. That is not possible because that parking garage where the real Woodward and Bernstein met with Deep Throat was actually outside of the city in Arlington in the Roslyn neighborhood. I'm going to probably not go into more of my accuracies on here because I'm realizing it's probably going to be an annoying rant that would go on for like 20 minutes. Um, And I realize that it's nuts for me to go on a rant in a movie with a fictionalized depiction of the people behind Deep Throat anyway. But I figured I'd share a few. That's really all I have to say about Dick. I think for me, it was a really, really well done film. And I have to say, like, 
I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. There's so many movies that came out around then that I think people thought they tried to market a certain way and they didn't know how to market it. Like Drop Dead Gorgeous is a great example of this. Like, yes, it's a teen film because it has teenage actors, but there's so much more fun things about it. It's very much more a dark comedy. And I feel like there are so many kind of lighter um studios nowadays who would have known how to package this movie and given it, I think, the right um, release and helped it grow probably more and find more fame until it became a cult classic. Yeah, I think I think Election would have been handled the same way that it has always been. But I think Jawbreaker and Dick maybe would have found more successes like a Hulu or a Netflix original or something like that. Who knows what it would have been turned into if it was made today i think actually jawbreaker might be a really good example because the writer director darren stein he actually originally had set out to write a horror movie which kind of makes sense because there's sort of like um there's like a scary undercurrent that kind of goes all throughout jawbreaker and as i mentioned earlier jawbreaker is streaming on that free service that emily texted me about that i thought that she was trying to tell me about like a pornhub thing it's not pornhub Pluto TV is like a real live, like they have actual live TV happening. So it's sort of like a YouTube TV that's free. But I I didn't really try out many of its features other than watching a movie. But just be warned that you will get like a sporadic commercial here and there. But it's a small very jarring though where. The placement was jarring out of nowhere. Exactly. Exactly. Like I'm happy it was just one commercial, but it was very jarring to go from like Kirsten Dunst to the Geico Gecko at a very important moment. I got two commercials through mine, but what I thought was the weirdest that they, I don't feel like they could have, you know, let us know or done it in a, a less abrupt way, but it cut to black, like out of nowhere. So you think the app is crapping out on you, but really I don't know, there's like five or a couple of seconds of black screen before it goes into the ad. It just, it freaks you out. And then it sort of like pauses when it comes back to the movie. All of that aside, I'm not trying to shame free content because, hey, we're free content. But if you want to revisit either Dick or Jawbreaker, they are on this streaming app. And Jawbreaker is only like an hour and a half long. It goes by really fast. I was surprised at how well paced this movie is for all of the sort of uh, fawning about how well it's paced for election that I read in various uh, think pieces about it now that it's, you know, 20 years old and is constantly relevant because of our political climate and even from before. And I think in 2016, there were a lot of think pieces where people are like, Hillary Clinton is Tracy Flick. Um, I think that Jawbreaker is also extremely well paced and the jokes are still just as funny as ever. But I will say you know, uh, Rose McGowan's depraved character also still holds up as like an extremely evil person that is also really beautiful. But there are parts of it where you're like, I think it's just a little bit like Heather's where you have to get into this mindset that these aren't really based on real high school students. So <laughs> don't get too offended by their behavior because it is going to be abhorrent. Because even though he started out trying to write a horror movie, he started with essentially the nugget of an idea that was based around a group of girlfriends who kidnap each other for their birthdays, which I, you know, whatever. I I don't know. I, I thought I had a pretty traditional uh, American upbringing, and it did not ever include pretending to kidnap any of my friends at no, any point in time. or gagging them there with a jawbreaker. 
There was one time, though, where I discovered that I was mildly claustrophobic at a <laughs> at a slumber party after we had seen Jawbreaker because I saw, uh, you know, I was just saw this in theaters, but I also saw it on slumber parties for uh, several years afterwards. We all decided that it would be fun to lock ourselves in our friend's dad's trunk just to see, just to like see, like, could, and this is also like a little bit lightweight, <laughs> like, like myth busting. crime. <laughs> it's also a little bit like where the true crime shit kind of comes from because we're also like if we got kidnapped and we got thrown in this trunk like how would we get out of it we're like <laughs> nine i don't i like i couldn't even believe this is like a legit concern that reminds that me did you ever see do you ever see john mulaney's special kid gorgeous where he's talking about the detective who comes to yes, their school and yes and he's like now yes. if the perp puts you in the trunk of the car <laughs> And you, it's like this, like hypothetical nine-year-old is in the trunk of a car and needs to like bash through a headlight, like a, a tail light, to try to wave their hand outside of it. Ta- like that is what your story reminds me of. <laughs> John, another male comedian that I share a lot of odd similarities with. Yeah, no. <laughs> But that's the the initial premise kind of stemmed from what if a group of girlfriends kidnapped each other for their birthdays. And then he went and did the thing that I think a lot of writers do is then ask the step further question is what happens when it inevitably goes horribly wrong? Because I don't think that you similar to Vanderpump Rules last week, they had a quote unquote prank happen where they called the cops, one of their friends. And not only is it illegal to impersonate an officer, it's also just one of those things where, like, this could have gone so completely wrong and so completely sideways. Thank your fucking lucky stars that you are white and privileged and that it wasn't a more terrifying situation for everybody. But it's another one of those things where it's like, wow, you must be, like, rich and privileged if you think that it's okay to kidnap your friends for a lark. It also makes me think about that movie with Alicia Silverstone and Benicio Del Toro oh, where she gets she stages from kidnapping. <laughs> I love what is with rich people. Why? Why, why can't you guys just like be happy and be rich yeah. and just fuck off and stop doing I, weird I think things? this is why I never fully enjoyed the premise of punk. Like it just didn't feel like I could relate or enjoy it. Like there's a moment where I enjoy a celebrity getting like having misfortune happen. But ultimately, like really so many of the scenarios are just like this could be a real life for a person who's not like white, rich and privileged. Like that could actually be something that happens to them. There, I've only been involved in the sense that I was on the receiving end of two pranks that I thought were legitimately funny and they were by they're perpetrated by the same person. One, I would say prank as much as and it wasn't so much a prank as much as it was motivation to trick me into going trail running with her which really fucking made me mad oh, but God. is ultimately very funny she basically she like pries on like my fear of like insects and bugs and and ra- random wild animals that will 100% come down and get you on a fucking trail like stop trying to act like there aren't mountain lions in them hills anyway she because i implicitly trust her because i've known her my entire life she like walks up to me as we're hiking and she's like, okay, like don't look behind you, but I'm just going to like, I want you to stay calm. But when I tell you to run, I just want you to run as fast as you can and as far as you can go without looking back. And I was like, uh, hmm. and uh, this is also somebody who like conned me out of Hello Kitty stickers growing up. Like I should have fucking known this fucking bitch. Anyway, I say that with all the love in my heart. She knows exactly who she is. Anyway, so we like uh, – so I'm trying to keep calm. I am obviously not a calm person in regular everyday life. And eventually just she just tells me to run. So I start running as fast as I can. And at a certain point, I stop because I fucking hear her laughing. And I stop and I look back. And there's nothing there. There's absolutely nothing there. She's like, oh, I got you. I was like, yeah. You got me. You betrayed my trust. Congratulations. 
And then the other time, the same fucking person calls me during a college class and I don't pick up. And then she texts me and she's like, oh, well, like whenever you get a chance, just give me a call. I just like have some news I need to share. Oh, my and God. Like, oh, God. And then she pretends to be pregnant. And at the end of it, she's like, April Fool's. I got you. I was like, that's not a joke. You could have really been pregnant. And then I would have to, you know, tamp down whatever comments I wanted to want to make because you're catching me off guard. Anyway, she's since ceased her pranking. But those are the only kind of pranks that I support. Ones that are like fairly victimless and are basically just dumb lies that you can then laugh about or recount on a podcast later. Those are the only acceptable pranks. <laughs> Do not kidnap each other. Okay. At some point, he obviously fully leans into a dark comedy, which is how we end up with Jawbreaker. I brought it back around. Stein wrote the first draft of Jawbreaker in 1994. Mind you, this movie doesn't get released or made till late 98, early 99, just to keep it kind of in some sort of perspective. So when he wrote Jawbreaker in 1994, he was 24, and it took about four years for it to get made after that. Every studio he went to, it passed on it. And at the same time, he was also shopping around a script for what would end up becoming his directorial debut called Sparkler. Sparkler was made and released in 1997. I looked it up. It looks very strange. It's like a Stella Got Her Groove Back type story where a woman mm. goes to Vegas with all of her girlfriends and she like meets up with some like high schoolers and one of them is Freddie Prince Jr. And I stopped reading after that. <laughs> When Jawbreaker finally got set up at Columbia TriStar in 1998, executives agreed to finance the film if he could get either Natalie Portman, Kate Winslet, or Rose McGowan in the lead role. The role of Julie initially went to Rachel E. Cook, which I thought would that would not have been good, just like Melissa Joan no. Hart as Tracy Flick would have not been good. Eventually, I, and Rachel I read e. that Cook, too. Eventually. That's insane. Sorry. Like, yeah, no, I just like for me, I, it's been it's been funny throughout this like episode reading like the original cast ideas that people had in mind of like who should play who. And I yeah, I can't even imagine Rachel Lee Cook as a Julie. Like it's just I feel like what works in Jawbreaker is, yes, these girls are playing high schoolers, but like they also it's clear that they are in their 20s, whereas Rachel Lee Cook very much looked like she was still in high school. I also think these like would have been casting announcements or parts of like the history of these movies that we love so much for the exact people who play the exact roles that they're known for is just the temperature of who is exactly popular at the time like uh Rachel Lee Cook was obviously extremely popular because of she's all of that and Natalie Portman was very popular and so was Kate Winslet and all and it's just interesting to try and think about what would Kate Winslet's interpretation of Courtney Shane would have been I don't I don't think that it would have been as good as Rose McGowan no. who I think is Eternally perfect, and I could not think of a better, you know, mean girl lead. So Rachel Lee Cook as Julie was eventually replaced by Rebecca Gayhart. Another, I'm isn't did she commit vehicular manslaughter as well, like Matthew Broderick? Yes. Or am I making that I think up? you're right. Okay. No, no, no. I when I think oh. of vehicular manslaughter, there's Gayhart, uh, Broderick, and then Brandy, unfortunately. And also Barbara Bush. Don't forget Barbara. Oh yeah. It's Laura Bush and Ted Kennedy. Laura, Ted Laura, Kennedy, sorry, not of. Barbara. Yeah, yeah. No. Oh, those Kennedys. <laughs> I mean, I'm since we're on the topic of politics, one the very first thing I remember learning about politics that my parents taught me was that the Kennedy family is cursed. And, oh boy, is that correct? Okay. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> so Rachel Lee Cook was replaced with Rebecca Gayhart because the producers felt like that she didn't have the right chemistry with the rest of the actresses, which Julie Benz plays Marcy Fox, aka Foxy, which I also forget about as well. She looks she looks the different. She looks the same and also different in this movie for some strange reason. Because like as soon as they cut to Marcy in the opening scene, I'm like, oh yeah, Julie Benz is in this. Yeah. And I don't know why. I it, 
I, I wouldn't say that she's forgettable and it's not like Marcy and Marcy's a great character. I just don't know why. I, I think maybe it's just overshadowed by like the Fern Mayo of it all and the Courtney Shane of it all. But she's a great uh, wing woman in this movie. Yes. Yeah. I think the other thing that stands out for me um, in terms of the casting and Jawbreaker, all the great cameos, like you have Jeff Conaway, RIP, VH1 Celeb Reality, as, um, as Marcy's dad. You have Pam Greer um, as the cop. You have Carol Kane, who plays Miss Sherwood. The superintendent. Yeah. Um, the principal. You yeah, also yeah, have yeah. Marilyn Manson, which I will Marilyn, get yeah. to. I, I'm actually extremely close to mentioning him. The only other interesting thing about Rebecca Gayhart was that she was also auditioning for the role of Fern and Marcy before they got her to play Julie. And of course, Marilyn Manson, he got a cameo in a non-speaking role because he was engaged to Rose McGowan at the time. You would recall that they appeared at the VMAs or the movie awards, one of those, with her in that see-through chain link dress or chain mail dress, yeah. which I believe we've talked about on this podcast before. Or I maybe I'm making that up. Maybe you and no, I have no, talked no. about it. Okay. I think I think we have for sure. That sounds right. Because we've and talked because, about Scream. And a little fun tidbit because this script had been floating around for so long and a lot of actresses read for different parts. My favorite almost was casting was Parker Posey, who, even though she really loved the script, passed because she was, quote, done playing high school, which who could blame her? Columbia TriStar, which was the video division or home video division of Sony at the time and would later become Screen Gems, gave Stein a comparatively small budget of $3.5 million, and I'm comparing it to Can't Hardly Wait and Cruel Intentions, which had budgets between $8 and $15 million, but he made it work. They filmed a lot on location in and around L.A. Reagan High School was actually University High School in West Los Angeles, but I also saw some conflicting info that it was Dorsey High, which is where they shot Buffy as well. All I can confirm is that the high school looks extremely familiar. The cafeteria scenes were filmed at Notre Dame in Sherman Oaks, and the diner that the girls drive to when they discover that Liz is dead in the trunk is Johnny's Broiler, which is in Downey, California. Before the film was released, MPAA obviously objected to graphic sex scenes between McCowan and Marilyn Manson's characters, and it had to be cut down so that they could get an R rating instead of NC-17, which, oh my god, I can't even... That scene is already disgusting as it it's is. So I can't even disgusting. imagine how much grosser I feel like it could have been. I still, to this day, if I watch that movie, I find myself either not really paying attention because it makes me cringe or feel really uncomfortable, or I fast forward. Like, I, I really don't like it. Plus, Marilyn Manson just creeps me out and not even because of his look, but rather just like kind of his predatory nature and that he like dated Evan Rachel Wood after. But we've talked about this many times on the podcast before. Um, anyway. <laughs> I would say I rewatched the scene and I actually didn't like close my eyes or turn away. It's not as bad as you remember, although it does... It reinforced to me why I don't like that Poison song very much. Every time I hear it, I get like a weird like, ugh, the song like makes me really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm, and it's because mm-hmm, of this mm-hmm. fucking scene for sure. Yeah. But I will say... And I'm ashamed to admit it, but you can go ahead and blame Tequila Soda Tuesday. But Marilyn Manson actually looks kind of hot with a creepy mustache and like him looking, you know, he's got the same color contacts in and he's just dressed more like a dirtbag. And he actually, you know what he looks, you know what he looks like? He looks like Carrie Bronstein when she dresses up like the dude in Portlandia in the oh, sketches. Oh, totally. Where in they uh, do the- um, cacao. Yeah. In the cacao yes, sketches. Yes, cacao. Yes. Thank you. Because yes. I almost started doing the Megan bit, but that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah, I wanted cacao. To do the other one. And no, anyway, she totally that's, does. Yeah. That's exactly who Marilyn Manson looks like. <laughs> 
So Jawbreaker debuted at, at the Sundance Film Festival in 1999, then was later released in the theaters in February. 1999 is a year that would later become known as like a pinnacle for teen movies. American Pie, She's All That, Some Things I Hate About You, Cruel Intentions. They all came out in the same 12-month span. So if you don't know, Jawbreaker centers on a clique of popular girls played by Rose McGowan, Rebecca Gayhart, and Julie Benz, who accidentally kill their friend Liz, Charlotte Ayana, who is also, I believe it was like Miss Texas, or she won a Miss Beauty pageant. So Liz only has one line and we don't even hear her actually say it when they're in her room staging her body to make it look like she'd been raped which is extremely uncomfortable but the I, but I also have to really credit Rose McGowan for and I and I talk more about her process about com- becoming Courtney Shane but I really credit Rose McGowan for like making a very serious kind of upsetting situation have a little bit of like levity in a strange way. I know that sounds not maybe like the nicest, but obviously it's a movie. But Rebecca Gayhart is foraging through Liz's room trying to find some stuff and she opens up this card and it's so creepy, but she Liz comes back from the dead and is like, what are you doing to me? But it actually sounds like she's like hurt or in pain. And to have that juxtaposed with like this dead body that they're trying to stage and they're also kind of almost like her and Marcy are not taking it that seriously. It's a very interesting, eerie moment that reminds you that, like, oh, yeah, it was supposed to be a horror movie at the beginning. But that's Liz's only line throughout the whole movie. Mm. Anyway, Liz dies because she chokes to death on a jawbreaker while she's kidnapped. I also think there's some interesting conversation that I've had with some friends around this movie about, like, how intentional it was that Courtney wanted to kill Liz, even though, she, you know, she kills the teen dream, deal with it. Uh, it's hard to tell whether that was her intention or whether it was actually an accident. Anyway, they try to avoid the consequences until their secret is discovered by their other classmate, Fern, who becomes Violet, played by the amazing Judy Greer. Influences for this film are Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and even Rock 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 and Roll High School, and Heathers, obviously. I feel like all of that, especially Heathers, is extremely present uh, of an influence. Rose McGowan agreed to play the mean girl Courtney Shane because she's, quote, Betty Davis, but in high school. McGowan described Courtney as, quote, a young, budding sociopath and drew inspiration from Gene Turney's character in Leave Her to Heaven. Fun fact, in Leave Her to Heaven, they have a scene at Johnny's Diner, which is featured in this movie. The distinctive costumes were designed by Vicki Barrett, who drew on the 80s and who drew on the 80s and 1950s era's fashion trends and blended it with like a fetishistic elements like lycra skirts, leather skirts, all bright candy colors to sort of like evoke the jawbreaker, was- but also like we're sexy te- we're they wanted them to look older than they appeared because they were. They thought the director Darren Stein thought it was very funny that there was There's like this trend of having people who are too old to be in high school playing high school students. There's definitely a lot of Grease influence in this as well. Because, like, obviously the older actors playing high school actors, just the outfits, in, but with, like, a 90s fetish goth. I think one of the quotes I read when I was doing research on this movie was, like, rainbow goth came up a lot, like, just with the palette. Um, but there's definitely a lot of Grease. Like, uh, for me, Rose McGowan evokes a lot of Rizzo throughout this whole thing in terms of attitude and, like, what she wears. Um, there, there is definitely looking back kind of Greece and Greece too, for that matter, uh, a lot of influence on the wardrobe of this movie. Stein chose Barrett who worked with wardrobe designer Mona May on Clueless and also on Romy Michelle's high school reunion to pull together the costumes because 
He knew that Barrett knew a thing or two about where to source the kind of campy fluorescent costumes that he was looking for. And the answer was L.A. vintage stores. Some pieces were even purchased for a dollar, which makes me wonder if Vicky Barrett was also scouring the dollar sale at Jet Rag. Jet Rag is a giant vintage clothing store on Highland um, in Hollywood. Uh, a lot of costume designers definitely go there. They have really beautiful vintage pieces at a wide variety of prices. And they also are very well known for the dollar sale, which is on Sundays, where they just dump out giant piles of clothes in their parking lot. And you can, and each piece is just a flat dollar. I think they've changed the rules now where it might be by, by pound. But back when I used to do it in my day, it was only just a dollar per piece. Frankenstein is as big of an influence on this film as Heather's, as evidenced by Courtney telling Judy Greer that she made her and she can unmake her. And in turn, Barrett looked at Violet as Courtney's monster and Courtney's creation. She goes on to say, quote, that juxtaposition was supposed to be like Liz getting prepared for death and Violet getting prepared for popularity. I wanted to reference classical Hollywood movies, and that's why it gets a little mad scientist at one point, which is there's a point where kind of like to tie it back to your point, there is a beauty school dropout, like deranged beauty school makeover session for Violet. It's not the same sort of, oh, everything's beautiful and great. And we took her glasses off and she's hot now. It's a little bit more sinister. She is creating her own monster. And why it looks so timeless is that they were doing just 90s clothes. Every outfit had kind of like a 1950 shape. Again, like you were saying, like Greece, it has the shape of the 1950s. So it has that familiarity, but then it's also sort of rendered through a lens of the time in which it was taking place. The clothes and jawbreaker are particularly impactful because they serve as like a day glow contrast to all of the dark comedy that is happening around them. It really kind of highlights the idiom of never judge a book by its cover. Courtney has an immaculate exterior, but it covers up her socio sociopathic insides. And one of the last things I want to get to before I wrap it up is an iconic scene, which is the prom scene. The movie's final showdown. The metallic hair braids that are wrapped around Rose McGowan's head for the prom scene is a result of an off-screen competition between McGowan and Rebecca Gayhart. After Rebecca Gayhart got her hair done for the prom scene and walked out of her makeup trailer with flowers in her hair, Rose McGowan saw that and quickly went back to the hair and makeup trailer and demanded that they do something more interesting with her hairstyle. This is also the only prom that Rose McGowan has ever attended. Make of that whatever you will. When Jawbreaker was released, they decided to add a music video because it was also that time where they would do the accompanying music video that goes with the movie that is being put forth. And it was to Yoo-Hoo by, I think it was, I forgot to write it down. Imperial it. Teen. Thank you. I was like, not Radical Teens yeah. and not New Radicals. That's the other teen movie. <laughs> but they shot that music video for Yoo-Hoo, which is the soundtrack of them walking down the hall. And it's still a great song. Um, the music video stars Rose McGowan harassing the band member with jawbreakers. This movie was also critically panned, like Dick. Some critics said that it plagiarized Heathers. It still holds a rotten score of 11%, which is wild because it does hold up. And despite its cr shitty critical reception, Jawbreaker found success through home video and television re-airings. Like we've seen with other cult classics, that's the one-two punch that helps give them that longevity that a lot of movies don't always kind of find. Some could and have argued that Jawbreaker has influenced modern teen movies like Mean Girls, especially when you compare the aforementioned slow motion walk down the hallway. McGowan's Courtney Shane is a pop culture icon, especially through beautification on social media, and like any good cla cult classic character worth their salt, has a big LGBTQ following. Stein and Rebecca Gayhart actually had a panel at DragCon in 2018 to talk about this movie. 
2014, Judy Greer said in an interview, quote, I really didn't think it was going to be anything special while we were shooting it, but when I saw the final product, I knew it was really good. I was so proud of it. I thought it looked beautiful. It had the right amount of sexy and pop culture fun to it. I do think it's still quite a special movie. A few bits and bobs from behind the scenes. Pam Greer's contract states that she must be in charge of doing her own hair and makeup for her films. For this film, she's wearing about three wigs blended together. That's Hmm. not something that I wrote. Someone else wrote that. That's interesting. I think this was her first big movie after Jackie Brown, right? Uh, Probably. If Yes, because Jackie Brown was what, 98? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. I should know that because it's my favorite Tarantino movie. But yes, um, yeah, that's... It seems like she rolls in wearing pretty much the same stuff from Jackie Brown. Just the same <laughs> getup of like a leather jacket, a white t-shirt, and some jeans. Yep. Um, each of the actors playing the Purr family, the mom and father, came from Carrie 1 and Carrie 2, which I thought was very funny because there are a lot of Carrie comparisons, especially in the final prom scene. Mm-hmm. And the band, speaking of prom, that plays is the Donnas. I Palo like the Donnas. Alto. Where are they now? I, they're from Palo don't Alto. Me. I don't they're, make, they're still making music because as I was writing this, I went to go turn on Turn 21. And hey, look, they still had some new music coming out. You go, Donnas. Good job, Donnas. Ugh, I love that. Currently, Stein most recently directed a movie called GBF, Gay, B- Gay Best Friend, which actually from the trailer did look very funny. And he's been working on a stage musical adaptation of Jawbreaker in addition to a half-hour series. The stage musical was is set for 2020, but, you know, I don't know if that's still happening. But that was the last I heard. In terms of this movie looking back, I mean, it's just it is one of those I think what stands out for me in addition to it being a great like dark comedy um, and just Rose McGowan's character just being so fantastic is the the look and feel like there's just so much attention played to that. Um, I think more so than some of our other films like, well, no, actually, I, I lied. I think costumes play such a big part in these three films, which is so funny, like, you know, politics are the underlying theme, of course, but then um, it's interesting to me how all three used costumes to kind of tell their story and to kind of set the scene of where we were, if it's for Dick, um, for Jawbreaker to tell the the story of like high school tropes, but set along like some really dark themes. Um, And then with election, just to kind of get the Midwestern of it all, you know what I mean? Like, it's very, very well done from a costuming sense. And also, I mean, just you listing out the various locations that some of these took place. It was a little bit div- a little bit more diverse in terms of location, especially with Election and Dick. It kind of gets you out of L.A. kind of glamoury or even just like by the beach, mm-hmm. like and she's all that. Um, I guess Never Been Kissed was in Chicago, but still, you catch my drift. Well, I think that about covers it. We are doing special written content on a Medium blog for our season three. So if you want to read all of the things that we weren't able to talk about in this over an hour long podcast, you can check us out at Old Millennials Pod on Medium. We are also on Facebook and on Instagram at the Old Millennials Pod. And guess what? We love ratings. We love reviews. You can check us out on iTunes, on Spotify, on SoundCloud, maybe on some other places. I don't know. But there are places where you can rate and review. So leave us a nice comment. That's really what helps us. Give us a five-star review. Really, we check this all the time from our sofas because what else do we have to do right now? There's a pandemic going on. Obsessively refreshing whether or not you guys have heeded our call. And thus far, I must say I am not mad, but I am mildly disappointed. Mildly disappointed. (laughs) 
You can also follow us on Twitter individually because who wants to follow a podcast Twitter? We're not Who Weekly. No. <laughs> um, you can follow me at Marg, she wrote. And I'm at Emily A. Beijing. And until next time, wait, how many? We only have two more episodes for this season, ah, right? Yes, yeah. And you'll be able to check out some mini episodes that'll be coming shortly after our season wraps up. Sure. I mean, of course, mini episodes are coming your way, but not be- but not before we finish up the season. So make sure you stay liked and subscribed and whatever else that podcast platforming places are making you do. And until next time, wash your hands, stay inside if you can, and goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.